back for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast, made possible by the generous support of the William Wood Foundation. I'm Eric Mills, the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine. And today, on the eve of February 2023, we gather um, for kind of a special reason today. Um, that's to honor something that happened in recent history 20 years ago, in February 2003. And it looks at something that ties into what we do here and naval history and the larger picture of uh, the news of the time. 20 years ago was the Columbia Space Shuttle disaster, and that has a specific tie-in with uh, the Naval Academy, where we're located, and uh, the larger story of what we do uh, when we talk about naval history. From his days as a cross-country team captain to his later role as a NASA pilot, Willie Willie McCool inspired those around him. And today, a memorial honors the memory of a life tragically curtailed. And we join in honoring that memory today on the eve of the anniversary of the Columbia shuttle disaster. And joining us today is um, a frequent contributor to the magazine, William Prom. Uh, Bill usually writes uh, Age of Sail material for us. He's one of our uh, current, really valued Age of Sail authors. But this time, uh, Bill, you did something different. You did something from modern history and it's a compelling story. It's a very moving story, as anybody who's read the current issue will know. Um, but maybe you can tell us about how you got involved in this particular story of Willie McCool. Naval Absolutely. Yeah, this, yes, yeah. The, it's definitely a, a little different, uh, kind of traded out Age of Sail for uh, Space Age uh, with this. Uh, but And it's very different, actually, interviewing people involved in the topic rather than relying on... Uh, manuscripts that are uh, 200 years old and things of that nature. Uh, But yeah, this was a very personal story uh, to me. I never knew Willie McCool personally. I was in high school um, at the time of the Columbia disaster. Uh, I knew more of it because of uh, Laurel Clark, who was another crew member on the Columbia. She uh, grew up in Racine, Wisconsin. I grew up in the Milwaukee area. Uh, So she was kind of a hometown hero for a lot of us then. And I really didn't know much of Willie McCool until I went to the Naval Academy. And I was on the cross country and track team there. And he was a, a legend, uh, still is, uh, on the team and is a big part of team heritage. And I was there at a time when the memorial that is currently up on the course and that uh, I discuss in the article was being designed and uh and then eventually dedicated. It was during my second class year that the dedication was there. And, and I imagine we'll get into that. But this is a, it's a, a much more personal topic than most of the things that I've discussed. He is, McCool is a, a hero to most people that know him and, and know of him. It was one of the most refreshing things in the course of all the interviews that I did for this just how genuinely admired uh, he was and just how genuine of a person he was that really lived up to the lore. Um, And there's nothing but wonderful things that people have to share and say about him. And especially knowing the, we had kind of a, a tighter timeline in completing this project and knowing when I would reach out to people uh, that knew him kind of starting with my, my internet work, just how many dropped everything they could to kind of help contribute to this and then pass me on to others as well. Uh, that It's really that uh, collaborative uh, love of him that really made this possible. 
Yeah, uh, it comes through in your article quite clearly, the different phases of uh, the life and career of Willie McCool. To everybody around him, he had a personality that just seemed to radiate. Um, and he really believes yeah. the trail that uh, left that impression on people throughout his, uh, his time here and to his later um, endeavors. Why don't you um, go ahead, now that we set the table, and um, discuss the uh, story of Willie McCool. Yeah. Starting his days at the Academy. Yeah, so uh, Willie McCool grew up really all over. Uh, graduated in, uh, from high school in Lubbock, Texas, but uh, spent a good uh, time in Guam. His father was uh, an aviator in the Navy. Uh, and that's where uh, really a large part of his story that doesn't just couldn't fit in this uh, is part of is started there. But that's where he uh, met his future wife that uh, is a big part of his life, obviously, through that, but just couldn't fit in into this story for the space. Uh, but regardless, William McCool was an accomplished runner already when he uh, made it to the Naval Academy. Uh, one of uh, one notable race of his for in high school was actually beating former President uh, George W. Bush in a cross country race, apparently. Uh, but uh, anyway, so he's at the Naval Academy, very uh, very accomplished both on the the field, the track, and in academics. He spent most of his time first in his class, actually at the Naval Academy. Graduated second uh, with. One minor uh, demerit uh, got caught running back on the yard with his shirt untucked is uh, my understanding. Uh, I could also say that's probably just the only time he was caught as well. But he was a, uh, a very highly regarded midshipman, uh, always generous with his time. Uh, and to help out uh, anyone struggling academically or athletically, uh, as far as on the team, because that's what I, I focus most of this on, it was rather uh, unremarkable, honestly, to start off with. He's just one of the herd. That's what all all plebes or freshmen are at the Naval Academy at, and in most sports, honestly, but cross country especially. Uh, and he eventually kind of distinguished him there. There's a memorable story with uh, Coach Cantello uh, asking him how dedicated he was to the sport and McCool sat and wondered, like, uh, I think it was like 25% or something like that that he said. And, and uh, Al was quite irate with that idea. He's telling him, you're, you're never going to have a history in that. Like, you're never going to make it uh, on the team with that uh, attitude. And uh, McCool is one of the few that could, that found a way to strike that balance of the academic and athletic success. And he started, he became more dedicated to the team rose through the ranks of the team, eventually becoming team captain. And it was in that, uh, in his final year as team captain at the Navy invite on October 2nd, uh, 1982, or 81, excuse me, uh, that he, or sorry, I was correct the first time, 82, uh, that we have a more monumental race. It wasn't his greatest race ever or anything like that, but it's an important part to this story. And uh, the Navy invite generally hasn't been the biggest uh, race of the year. It's uh, uh, usually earlier in the season than October, actually. But this year was uh, particularly stacked. You had uh, several uh, ranked teams in Syracuse and Georgetown in attendance and uh, cross-country runners of the year uh, Already a multiple-time All-American. I think he would still get three more All-American spots by the end of 
his collegiate career uh, was going to be there. And there was, people knew that he probably couldn't beat O'Connell, but there was still a chance that the team could win just the way that the, the race is scored. And uh, long story short, gun goes off. It's great weather. O'Connell wins. It sets a, a course record, one, an incredible one that stood for 25 years. In fact, it took uh, future Boston and L.A. Marathon winner and uh, uh, what is it, Kenyan General Assemblyman, uh, Wesley Career, uh, to beat that time in uh, 2007. I was lucky enough to be in the race. Uh, nowhere near his time, however. I was a bit further back. But uh, anyways, McCool was in, so he's in that race, and he's setting a pace that that stood as a marker for the rest of the team. And even though O'Connell won, Navy still beat these ranked teams that year. That was uh, quite the accomplishment. And when I was a, a midshipman on the team, it was McCool's time that really was kind of that, uh, that marker of how you stack as, as far as the, the history of the team goes, that we keep this list of, uh, top times on the course, top times at other courses or in period. And uh, when I started, I think McCool was at the 24th mark on that. And since others have passed his time as well, but we, we always keep his time on there because we judge our success uh, really based on him, especially with the placement of that memorial that we'll get to. Um, you mentioned he uh, also was uh, academically excellent here. And uh, the, the real theme, the, the sort of starting and end point of your story, um, quite compellingly, is the memorial monument that stands to him here in Annapolis. But he's also remembered here in another way, too, right? And that is uh, there's an academic excellence award named in his honor to this day. Um, he was yes. ahead of the class for a, lar a large part of the time, right? I mean... Yes, and, and continued to basically at every school he went to after that. Because uh, after graduating, he quickly got uh, a master's degree at University of Maryland and remained close to the team during that time. In fact, he, it was during that period as an ensign going to Maryland that uh, he was introduced to Ronnie Harris, who is uh, one of the best athletes uh, from the Naval Academy cross-country team ever, and that he had actually picked up Ronnie Harris from the airport, flying in from California to start plebe summer and was really his introduction to the Naval Academy and kind of formed a, a bond and it was a bit of a mentor for him. And it was uh, Harris was the one that eventually came up with the concept of, of the memorial and where it is. Uh, but that's a, a bit of a digression and what you're, you're going at with the academics and that, yeah, so he, gets that master's degree, goes on to flight school, graduating top of his class there, gets to select uh, whatever he wants to choose and goes for Prowlers, the A6B at the time. He wants that. Uh, it's a difficult air uh, airframe to fly. There's a more command opportunity was uh, one of his uh, responses for why he chose that option. Eventually going to test pilot school where he's also graduating top of his class. And I believe there's uh, the honor graduate there is now named after him as well. Um, mm. And even uh, 
other honors uh, academically for him in the the Houston Alumni Association uh, for the Naval Academy gives a Smith McCool trophy named after Mike Smith of Challenger and William McCool of Columbia. Uh, it's a, a sword that goes to the highest ranked first class midshipman from the the area um, every year. That's it's very, um, very fitting. Well, um, why don't we talk about what he does after he leaves the academy, uh, his, yes. his career track that leads him to NASA eventually? Yes. Yeah. So in the in the story, I really focus in on one specific event uh, during his time as a naval aviator uh, after test pilot school when he's at Pax River. Uh, there is he was preparing for additional tests for the um what was it going to be? The, the ADCAP uh, EA-6B. Uh, they wanted to take the flight uh, airframe out for uh, a test run, basically just trying to stall. It was uh, a fly-to-stall test where they went out over the water uh, and he'd go up at high angle and just bring it back. Uh, but then one of the times, I believe it was maybe like the third attempt, uh, the left engine starts to stall and, and does stall. And based on the high angle, uh, high angle of uh, attack, the thrust coming from the right engine, the stalled left engine, uh, it led to the aircraft quickly getting into a fast spin. Uh, they were in a wreck spin of 15 to 20 degrees, uh, nose down. Uh, I was able to, I was lucky enough to uh, get in touch with Nancy Fetchdig, the NFO that sat to his right. Uh, the A6B has four seats in it. He had, they had two additional NFOs sitting behind them. Uh, but she was gracious enough to uh, spend some time with me to relive this event. Um, and as she explained, yeah, the, the world just starts spinning around them. The, her NATOP starts floating up in the air and is quickly grabbing it. And one of the things that she remarks about this, and it's part of the reason that I included in this story and how it relates to his time on Columbia is just the kind of cool, calm, collected attitude that he had through it, that there was no sense of panic at all. They were, when the fall started, they were, or the spin started, they were at about 18,000 feet, which was uh, about 8,000 feet above where they should eject if the aircraft isn't in control. And he immediately launches into the emergency procedures to try and correct it. And he's going through the checklist, flipping every switch, uh, flipping every toggle, whatever it is that he needs to do. And he gets into the, uh, what is it, assist spin recovery where they're going to the extended throws so he can try and correct it. Uh, goes through all that and nothing happens. Uh, so now at a point where uh, most rational people would probably have already been panicking, certainly then when you've done every step you're supposed to and nothing is happening. Uh, and you're in this uh, uh, three or 30,000 pound aircraft just spinning rapidly, falling down and notices one little light isn't illuminated, that the toggle didn't seed. So quickly goes through the steps again. This time it works uh, and he's beginning to correct it. But uh, the way Nancy described it, uh, yeah, there's 
no way, no visual cues, just looking out the, the window to tell that they're slowing down at all. They had this one locator, it was rate. Jita described just how it was pegged out for the longest time, and it maxed at uh, 100 uh, spins a second, I think, or I mean a minute, sorry, um, and slowly started to see it creep down as they're going lower and lower. Uh, they're calling out the altitude. They've passed that 10,000-foot uh, threshold where they're supposed to eject if they're not in control, but Willie is still calmly claiming that, uh, stating I've got it and they are able to pull it out uh, and and correct it that they had fallen probably about 12,000 feet so correcting it around that 8,000 uh, or sorry 6,000 foot uh, mark there and brought it out of that spin uh, one of the things that Nancy uh, reflected to me was that there had been at this point this was like the 10th or 11th prowler to stall and go into a spin like this uh none of them have been recovered up to this point uh in fact there was an incident at Whidbey island about a month earlier where they went into a spin the crew ejected everyone survived although one person uh one of the nfos i believe their hand struck the the cockpit on the way out actually had to be amputated afterwards so the the procedures were fresh in everyone's mind for this, uh, but yeah, it was the first time that the spin was able to be recovered. And uh, remember her also relating that uh, well, one of her early thoughts is like, oh, we're all in our dry suits and as they're out over the water, uh, not really looking forward to uh, dropping in into the cold water out there. Uh, thankfully, didn't have to. It's just really remarkable, isn't it? When you, you, you hear that uh, account, how how do you maintain your sang-froid and your analytical mind just calmly focused while you're spinning 100 times a minute, descending rapidly? It's remarkable. And it's also remarkably prescient for um, the sort of culminative thing in his life and career, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. But just that, uh, I guess that embodies what you'd call grace under pressure. Um, it's quite a phenomenal thing to read. And it's really great for the sake of uh, the story and for history that you got to talk with his uh, uh, Nancy Fectic, who was in there with him and, um, you know, get that firsthand account from the person sitting right next to him when this occurred. And absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's like everything he touched so far has been like, um, uh, he's just had a Midas touch with it. And uh, so he's, it's, he advances from aviating aviator to uh, NASA. So let's t why don't we talk about how that yeah. comes about? Yes. Yeah. So shortly after he uh, goes back to the fleet uh, and is applies for NASA flight program uh, is accepted, uh, was actually hesitant about accepting it because he was, I think they were on uh, their last at sea training period before deployment on the, the enterprise, I believe. Uh, and I walked into his CEO telling him like that he had gotten the accepted for this and was worried he'd be letting everyone down uh, by taking this. Uh, but thankfully he was uh, convinced like, no, you don't pass on, on an opportunity like NASA and he's clearly qualified for it. And his first uh, mission that he was selected for was STS-107 Columbia. And 
it was one that kept getting delayed. Uh, whether it was uh, Hubble repairs, there was an emergency resupply of ISS. Uh, there was also, there was another issue with Columbia itself, I think in the, the fuel line or something that had to be corrected that their, their workup schedule essentially just kept getting extended. It ended up being one of the longest training periods for a shuttle crew um, up to that time. So it really made for a very tight knit family uh, for what, from my understanding, generally all already happens for these crews just because of the amount of time they're spending together, but even more so in this case. And this was going to be one of the first uh, purely scientific missions uh, for a long time for NASA, just because of the, again, repairs to Columbia, uh, building up, uh, uh, or sorry, build, the construction of ISS. So they weren't... Uh, they weren't going to be going to ISS. They didn't even have the, the docking platform uh, in the shuttle for that. Uh, so as we all know at this point, uh, kind of looking back, when, when Columbia did launch, it had that bit of the, uh, the insulation that struck the, the left wing uh, on the, the heat panels that just made enough of a, an error or enough of a... Uh, a crack in it essentially that that's what eventually doomed the shuttle now it was recognized like it was identified during the takeoff that that had occurred and while they were in space uh, but it was understood that uh, there really wasn't anything that could be done at, at this point uh, because again they had no no way to access iss to try and use that as a lifeboat uh, they wouldn't be able to get another shuttle out. Uh, and it was essentially deemed as like, it's probably inconsequential and let's continue with the mission. Um, and, and that's what they did. Uh, that, uh, so there were about 80, uh, 80 different experiments they had done over the course of about 16 days, I believe, on the mission. And everything other than that one incident during takeoff, everything kind of continued as planned. And they, when it came to uh, re-entry, uh, they went into the, the the schedule of events as normal. Um, again, no issues. And uh, I even call out in in the description of their their re-entry that. They're in the big orange jumpsuits. Uh, now, those actually weren't, um, yeah, in the, the image there. When the shuttle was originally designed, uh, the astronauts weren't intended to wear those for takeoff and reentry. It was seen as like, to treat this like a plane. They're being their, their actual flight suits. It was after Challenger that that became the norm, that they would have these for uh, an additional uh, emergency evacuation purposes. Um, but the problem is the the cockpit wasn't redesigned for these bulkier uniforms. So it was not uncommon to accidentally uh, hit a toggle that you didn't intend to. And, and that's exactly what happened uh, with uh, Commander Hubbard. He uh, accidentally hit one of the autopilot um, toggles, I believe. It didn't cause any issue. And it was, I only call it out because that was a problem that they recognized immediately and went on uh, that. So it was essentially that even when things went wrong, everything seemed fine. Uh, 
uh, for this. And so as they continued into their descent, uh, they're, they're going about Mach 24, Mach 25 uh, through this. Uh, so incredible speeds. It's uh, almost 3,000 degrees, I think, uh, like 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit outside as they're starting to enter the atmosphere. Uh, you can actually watch some of the video there. It's available online uh, of, of the cockpit during this period. And you can see uh, they're, they're, they're suited up. Some in the backseat don't, don't have their gloves on as they're going through the checklist uh, with everyone. They're even cracking jokes. Uh, uh, Willie points out the, the plasma burn outside the cockpit and uh, Hubbard responds, I, I wouldn't want to be out there. Um, and, and they're they're joking. What? Who who wanted to be out there to begin with? Um, so again, they're they're oblivious to the fact that uh, something is about to go wrong. Um, and it, it's shortly after that uh, they're performing the first roll uh, to the, for uh, energy management, and they're reaching that peak heating. They're still about uh, over two or two hundred thousand feet up, going Mach twenty four still, uh, but that's as scheduled, uh, no issues. But one of the reaction control system jets uh, starts firing. These are essentially automated, little automated jets that will just do little spurts here and there to try and help correct. Um, and they're not necessarily alerted that those are going off. That's just part of how the, the descent occurs. Uh, but this is starting to occur because of the degradation of that left wing. Uh, it is a crack had formed from that debris that had fallen during takeoff, and it was allowing this super hot gas to get in and start degrading systems. And it was uh, at this point, it wasn't necessarily messing with telemetry that much, that or not so much that the RCS jets couldn't uh, help correct it. And so they're continuing on in the in the descent, they're passing through uh, like over California in 59 seconds, going Mach 23. Um, I had uh, an account in here where reading uh, an interview of his father talking about seeing that they're living in the Las Vegas area at the time. He was both he and his wife, I believe, were uh, professors there at UNLV, and they're watching it, uh, watching Columbia take a. Uh, like seeing the fireball go over in the sky, calling Willie's sister in Florida, who's there for the um, uh, for the landing, uh, to say that he's on his way. Um, and then going from Nevada into um, uh, into Texas, they're still going as as expected. But then more errors are starting to pop up. All of a sudden, uh, they're they're getting shorts in, in systems they weren't expecting. Uh, there were, a lot of these were cases that they had trained for. Like uh, one of the examples was a, a sh they were getting a, an alert that there were like low tire pressure in the left landing gear. That's something they'd seen before, but not in all four tires uh, that they were getting uh, kind of novel errors at this point. The things that, uh, it shouldn't be lining up the way they are. Uh, it wasn't as simple as a shorted fuse. That's generally what it ended up being in training. And more of these would start happening and more of the RCS jets started firing. 
uh, it eventually got to the point that they were no longer just doing the little spurts, but just firing uh, uh, continuously at this point. Again, something that, that shouldn't be happening. And they're, they're going over Dallas at this point at about uh, 200,000 feet. And it's around then that Mission Control receives their final message from uh, Columbia. It was just a, a roger to, to a question that had been asked and that they, they were going to go and search for. Um, and outages, uh, radio silence at this point, isn't necessarily unexpected. Uh, but it was certainly concerning for those on the ground. They had, uh, with this mounting list of uh, air messages that they were receiving, uh, at this point, there was debris shedding that, uh, and debris shedding that could be seen from the ground. Uh, the, the first video capture of it was prior to this point. And then a, a master alarm set off and all of really all of these major errors started presenting themselves to uh, the crew and McCool and Hubbard specifically, really in a matter of a minute. Um, so very much like uh, when he was in the Prowler, that's part of why I include this in here, is that they start going through those checklists that uh, that everyone knows. Uh, like NASA, naval aviators, you have these checklists that you go through for a reason. Uh, and they start identifying what, what these errors could be. And as, as they're going, and, and some of this had to be pieced through uh, from the recovered material, that it was around this point that we started, or we stopped receiving data from Columbia. So everything then had to be pieced together, um, again, from, from the wreckage. And one of the recovered pieces was the R2 panel, which was one just to the right of McCool uh, as the pilot. On his right side, it was one that had folded in on itself uh, after uh, the disaster or after the explosion. Um, and it helped kind of keep it intact. So it was, at this point, the... Uh, there was a depressurization occurred. The shuttle started to corkscrew as the more debris fell and started uh, spinning about 30 to 40 degrees per second, uh, kind of with that, that belly going in the, the velocity vector as they're in uh, where they're heading. So they're in an uncontrolled non-ballistic uh, or uncontrolled ballistic trajectory going about 15 or Mach 15, uh, with no hydraulic pressure. That was uh, from the uh, the damage that left wing. They were losing hydraulic pressure, which would have allowed McCool as the pilot to try and correct that. Um, and from what we can tell from the recovered wreckage, is he's identifying that one of the uh, APU's auxiliary power units uh, was running, but that there was no pressure in it going from that. It's not a lot. It's mostly meant just keep uh, fluid circulating in space so that nothing's freezing up. Uh, but he knew that he it was something that he could try. So he's going through uh, this list of toggles to try and repressurize that. And now this is actually something that isn't part of the checklist uh, that they have, but it's, it's from a... 
an expert knowledge of the shuttles or the orbiter systems uh, and how they work. And that he was continuing to fight the problem uh, to the very end, that they had essentially exhausted everything that was in the book. Uh, so now he was going out of it um, using, again, that that expert knowledge that we know he had uh, from all of his academic success, that he, he knew everything that could be done with this platform. Again, going back to that extensive training period that they had as a shuttle crew, that they were, even though it was his first mission, he was so highly prepared for this. And uh, but it, it wasn't it wasn't going to be enough, and that uh, if uh, the, the they couldn't have known that it was the final moments uh, when the depressurization happened, uh, but it it didn't stop him, uh, and and that's part of his legacy, and really is that he continued to fight that to the very end, and that's really kind of part what goes into all of these stories that it goes back to his time as a midshipman on the course that he knew he couldn't beat someone like Jim O'Connell, but he knew that he could help his team still win. Uh, and so that it's a through line through these uh, stories. Uh, and that's really what it helps spark the, how do you want to put it? The, the inspiration for his memorial on the course, uh, which the article starts off with talking about how the Naval Academy is uh, littered almost for a lack of a better term with memorials and monuments all over you. It's a wonderful reminder, honestly, for midshipmen walking from Bancroft to class. You can't not be reminded of the deeds of your forebears and what a, everyone has done before you. Can you live up to it? Uh, but I still think that McCool's on the cross-country course is really the most personal and most moving of all of them. Now, I had mentioned uh, earlier that Ronnie Harris, uh, a mentee of McCool's, was the one that kind of first came up with the idea that shortly after this happened, he and many of the other graduates that knew McCool had been in contact with Al Cantella, who was still coach at the time, that to try and they needed to do something to help remember him. And uh, it eventually struck uh, Ronnie Harris that, you know what, he, Columbia blew up 16 minutes from their scheduled re-entry. Why don't we figure out where McCool would have been on the course on that day that he ran his best, 16 minutes from finish. So they, they mapped out the course based on his pace and identified where he'd be uh, about eight minutes and uh, 27 seconds uh, into his fastest time on the course. Um, so it puts, uh, so this marker, it's a big stone tablet where you have a side facing the road with Willie McCool uh, in bronze, an image uh, in bronze of him there. It's surrounded by seven stars for the seven astronauts. As a, a, a quote of uh, McCool's from when he was uh, in, in space talking down um, about uh, John Lennon's song, Imagine, actually, and uh, trying to look at the world with, without borders. 
And then on the reverse side, facing the course, essentially where the path that the, the runners would be coming up, just read 16 minutes from home. And uh, it's something that you, you pass by twice on the course, but it's, I was lucky enough uh, in my uh, first class year or senior year to, to race on the course the first time that that was there. And it, it is truly inspiring to have that as that reminder, really just daring you. And can you be as good as William McCool? And it's something that I, I think back to it, not just for athletic pursuits, like can I run as fast, but can I, can I be as daring? Can I work as hard? Can, can I live up to uh, this example that we're so lucky that he provided? Uh, and that's uh, honestly what, what I get from a lot of people in talking uh, about him for this project. And I, I remarked on it earlier, just the, the outpouring of support to help write this from everyone that knew him uh, really, it speaks volume to him as a character. It definitely does. And the, the, the placement of that monument is a poignant and perfect idea. And he clearly remains and will remain an example to aspire to. And that memorial does him honor. And now's a good time for us all to remember him on the anniversary of uh, that catastrophe that he, he kept trying to the bitter end. And in the end, it was nothing, it was all beyond their control on some technical level. But the fact that even past all the protocols, all the checklists, he was still saying that the only logical conclusion can be this. And he never gave up. That's perhaps the um, most shining gift he gave as an example to those who follow. So uh, thank you, Bill, for, um, very much for bringing alive the memory of Willie McCool. Um, gone but not forgotten. Um, and thank you for joining us. And I hope to have you again in the magazine very soon. Um, I guess that's it for us, folks, for today. Uh, thank you for joining us for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Eric Mills. Until next time. <laughs>